fellow Fierce Physician females. It's me, Dr. Erin Wiseman, your colleague in medicine and coach in life. And this is Dr. Me First, a podcast all about authentic conversations between us, female physicians, to bring encouragement, community, hope, and fun to your life and your practice. Today's episode is episode number nine, and I am talking with Dr. Irene Tien. The word that she chose is hilarious because we all have it. It's frustration. So check our conversation out and stick around for a kick of encouragement afterwards. Hey everyone, I'm here today with Dr. Irene Tian. She is an emergency medicine trained physician at the University of Connecticut, and she is such an amazing person. She went and got a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine. But the coolest thing about her is that she is involved with telehealth, she blogs, and she is a health literacy and patient advocate in the greater Boston area. She specifically helps guide patients in their health management, whether it be from an urgent Um, injury or illness or help them to better understand their medical problems. I had invited my LinkedIn community to join me on this podcast and Dr. Tian was one of the first responders so I'm so excited to welcome her today and have her join me on this podcast. So hey Dr. Tian. Hi, Dr. Weissman. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we had chatted a little bit before this trying to figure out a topic, and it seems like maybe the one we ought to talk more about is frustration. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think we'll have a problem talking about that and having enough uh, material for that. Absolutely. So let's first, I want to hear more about what you're doing in telemedicine. Okay, well, um, I actually decided that I would be an entrepreneur and branch out from my standard emergency medicine practice, which I've been doing for about 20 years, and branch out into telemedicine uh, last September or October um, by joining a group called the RODOCS Network, um, which is actually a group of multi-specialty physicians throughout the country, as well as a few physicians abroad. And we all provide telemedicine services for patients in an effort to increase access to doctors for patients. Um, So I joined them because, honestly, I was frustrated very apropos to our topic today, uh, with my um, standard practice. And so this was kind of a way for me to balance out my frustrations by taking control over my practice to some degree. That's amazing. Well, tell me a little bit more because I know my own frustrations with the current healthcare system, but tell me a little more about what yours are. Well, I find that as the years have gone on um, that, you know, obviously our workload has increased steadily over the years. Um, but I'm finding now that healthcare appears to be at a moment of, you know, we're on the precipice. We're at a moment of disruption, a moment of crisis. I, I feel like suddenly all of the issues that uh, had been simmering below the surface for the first, you know, 19 years of my practice are suddenly coming to the forefront. And things are changing at a speed I have never seen before and not in a good way, unfortunately. Um, some examples are um declining reimbursements for the same or more work. Um, Also, difficulty with ongoing and worsening drug shortages. Patients being told that if they are um, going to the ER and the insurance company takes a look at their visit later on, that they could be denied coverage if the insurance company felt it was not an emergency. Um, So things like that are really um, very stressful for myself, but also for my patients. And despite the fact that everybody now is mandated to have insurance, unfortunately, those costs out of pocket for patients is actually rising. So even though they're insured, 
the amount it's costing an individual family to be insured is rising, while the deductibles are also rising and co-pays are also rising. So in effect, you're asking the patient to pay much more than they used to pay for a lot less service. So all of these things together are really alarming me as a physician and realizing now that these things are really affecting how well I can take care of my patients and how well patients can take care of themselves. Absolutely. I have those exact same frustrations. I had shared earlier that I was doing a cardiac workup on a woman who then our pleasant registration person came in to tell them about some new insurance mandates on whether or not this visit would be considered emergent and covered. And I swear that it probably jumped up all of her vitals for the next five minutes um, because she was panicking because she was having chest pain already. And then she was thinking about this not being covered. I, I just think as a physician, you know, we go into this career to help people so much. And yet I know on my day to day that I feel like all I do is rearrange the deck of cards. Yes, I completely agree. Um, I think that the problem is that we all, well, I'd say the majority, I shouldn't speak for everybody. I went into medicine because I wanted to take care of patients. And more and more, I'm realizing that in order to take care of my patients, I need to do more than what I'm doing at the bedside. Um, I need to understand the healthcare system. I need to understand why the healthcare system is the way it is in order for me to adjust my practice so I can take better care of patients, but also to help patients navigate the system so they can take better care of themselves. But as you and I know, um, people who are holding the money are the ones who are making the rules. And unfortunately, that is neither myself nor the patient. Um, And the rules are constantly being changed because the less that they have to pay, the better business for them. And so, you know, it is kind of almost a bit like a game. But I find that as a physician, I need to better understand the game so that I can better play the game on behalf of myself I know, because so many times, don't you feel like when the rules change, it's like playing chess and 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 then you're sitting down at a whole new board game from just yesterday, yes. even trying to have to figure out. I know that, um, you know, we talked about one of our frustrations, too, is, you know, how doctors are being blamed for ordering too many tests. Yes. Uh, we both practice in the emergency room and, you know, people come to us for answers. We can't yeah. always give them to them, but. I don't know about you, but I just get so frustrated. It's like on one side, if I order this test, yes, it's going to cost my patient money. But if I don't order it, how much is it going to hurt them if we don't find out what's going on with them? Exactly. And I think the problem is that um, healthcare is a business now. And when you think about businesses, you think about, well, how am I going to spend less than I'm making? Um, So if you're talking about fixing a car or going to buy groceries, or building a house. You know, those things, of course, you have to think about costs, and you have to think about um, benefit. But it's much more black and white if you want to add on that third uh, bedroom to your house. It's much different than trying to figure out, do I need um, another troponin for this patient with CHF? Completely different issues. And to try to make medical care so black and white, like everybody fits in the same box for every different diagnosis is ludicrous. Um, but that's kind of how the business of healthcare is pushing us and, and uh, consumers into a corner where they're expecting to apply business principles to medicine, which they do not go together. <laughs> I know <laughs> that. And, and also working with students too. I mean, 
they have such a hard time when we veer away from the algorithm. You know what I yeah. mean? They're like, what do you mean? What do you mean that we're going to do this? Or And I mean, sometimes it's a good learning opportunity, both for the student and for myself, to have that conversation, mm-hmm. to understand yeah. why we are doing these things. Right. But that's one of the biggest lessons that I try to teach coming through is that people don't follow the, the books. Not at no. all. No. And, and the algorithms that's are the pressure. That's the pressure that we're under. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think algorithms are a great starting place. And I think that, um, you know, consistency of care for our most common medical problems is great evidence-based care, of course, because none of us have time to read all of the literature and be 100% on top of every um, problem um, that we see in the emergency department, obviously. But the problem I'm finding now with new trainees is that they want to invoke the algorithm, but they don't actually know what's in the algorithm or why the algorithm is the way it is. And I think that's definitely a shortfall that I'm seeing uh, as a side effect of so many algorithms. Absolutely. Yeah, but definitely, I mean, the experience that we get in training, the um, education that we get in medical school and residency, I mean, really all of that is meant to allow us to think critically about the patients that we're seeing. And, And I agree completely. Algorithms are um, great for guidance and a starting point, but you know, not everybody fits in an algorithm. And that's where all of our thousands of hours of training come in to try to sort out when should we uh, diverge from the algorithm. Tell me about your frustration, just to jump off of that, when you have patients come with you who want a specific algorithm that they found on the internet. Right. <laughs> oh exactly. Gosh. Well, I think the root of this problem is that there's a lot of distrust between um, patients and their, uh, not between, but patients for their physicians. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, as an aside, um, I think one of the problems is that we are not good at PR as physicians. We go to work, we see patients all day, we go home. That's it. Um, but unfortunately, the powers that be, we're, you know, we're trying to fill a deficit with the Affordable Care Act. Um, costs need to be saved somewhere. And the places where most of the cost is um, spent in healthcare insurance and pharmaceutical companies, um, that is not where the cost savings are occurring because, unfortunately for us, those, <laughs> those groups have very strong lobbying powers and they understand the business of medicine better than we do. And so, unfortunately, those cost savings um, come, down to, come down to us. Um, so, you know, I think that when patients come in, they hear a lot on the outside about how doctors are balance billing, that we're greedy, uh, that we make so much money. And they really, I think, doubt, um, you know, sort of where we're coming from when we're trying to take care of them and give them advice. So I like to start those types of conversations with some sort of um, understanding of where they're coming from. And then I find that explaining my uh, thought process after having heard what they're in for, as well as what research they've done ahead of time um, and explaining myself clearly about why I agree or disagree, hopefully, you know, creates a rapport where there's a lot more trust between myself and the patient. Um, so it is a challenge. We are starting a bit behind the eight ball in this situation. Um, but again, it does come down to a one to one patient to physician relationship and at the base of it, a person to person relationship. Um, hopefully that's enough to kind of get them on board to what I'm saying, at least hear what I'm saying. And I do find most of the time it does help, although not 100% of the time. Do you find that in your telemedicine practice that you're 
more able to gain this rapport than maybe say like in your ED? Is that what kind yeah. of attracted you to it? Well, what originally attracted me to it was the entrepreneurial nature of this particular group, the Rodox group, in the sense that I would have control over building my own business and seeing patients um, the way that I wanted to see them. Um, but I think the, the major advantage of telemedicine in the way that I'm practicing is that I have time to actually speak to the patient about their questions, their concerns. There's not as much interruption or rush like I experienced in the emergency department. So almost guaranteed if it's a busy day, if I'm in a room with someone, it's very likely I'm going to get interrupted. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm in a telemedicine appointment, um, I have carved out a block of time for that one patient. And that allows me to give that patient, uh, you know, my undivided attention, which is great. And then in my practice, I what I love about it is that I follow up with my patients, which, you know, in the emergency department, we really don't do that individually, except in unusual circumstances. Although some people I'm sure are better about that than others. But when you see, you know, 25 to 30 patients a day, you know, it's, you're not really going to be following up with 25 to 30 people the next day when you're back in the ER again. But right. with telemedicine, you know, I do create a relationship that, um, you know, it's a little bit different. So I do um, find that the, the relationship and rapport is different. Plus, they're choosing to see me versus in the ER. They're just choosing to go to the ER. They're right. not choosing to see me, <laughs> per, per se. Absolutely. Well, I know one of the frustrations that we had talked about, too, is the frustration on how doctors have lost the the sense of control of their yeah. career and of their practice. Yeah. Has telemedicine kind of reinstalled that feeling of control for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think that with the telemedicine, um, you know, because right now telemedicine is services are not covered by insurance. I have the freedom of um, basically billing the patient in a tra- in a uh, transparent way um, using um, not, no insurance. Mm-hmm. So kind of like a direct primary care model um, where basically it's very clear on my website how much I charge. And um, honestly, the, the charge is way lower than what you actually get charged when you go to an urgent care, because I actually did. My husband had to go to an urgent care a few months ago. Um, and the, the physician charge after insurance coverage was $200. And my charge to see you on telemedicine is $100. And that's $100. I'm not going to nickel and dime my patient. Every time I talk to them, I'm not charging them. I'm charging them $100 to see them and and any follow-up phone calls we have are part of that $100 charge. So really the goal is not to, um, you know, make bank <laughs> on telemedicine, but the goal is to allow patients another opportunity to access a doctor more easily while being able to actually make enough money to, um, you know, support myself and support the practice. Um, but this is, this is where I've actually learned a lot about direct primary care, and I, I realize now that that model is, Amazing. I'm amazed at what um, direct primary care doctors have been able to accomplish with regards to transparency and lowering costs for patients. Right. By just opening up services and just being innovative, you know, kind of upstream. I always explain to people, I'm like, you know what, who I would really want to be Dr. Quinn medicine woman. You get me on my horse, you get me my medicine bag, you pay me in chicken and pie, and you will be good. (laughs) Bye. No, I I think a lot of doctors miss that time, if they remember it, miss that time where it was a bit on the simpler side. And I think that, 
even, you know, I would consider myself mid-career, you know, 20 years in, but even in that period of time, I've noticed a huge change in the way uh, medicine is practiced. And it's not, unfortunately, for the better. And I'm seeing doctors leaving practice in droves. And it's just that they're all getting burned out. And I know there's a lot of, um, you know, chatter about whether burned out is really a proper term when it's not really the doctor that's the problem. It's the system. Mm -hmm. But, you know, everybody understands what it means to be burned out. And um, it really saddens me to see wonderful clinicians leaving practice not because they dislike medicine or they hate, you know, taking care of patients, but because the system is not allowing them the longevity in their career that they deserve and their patients deserve. So Absolutely. it's really a tragedy. It's really a tragedy. And, you know, from my background, you know, that's a huge thing that I specialize on. I am only mm-hmm. four years out of residency, and I can yeah. honestly say that I burned out. Either I was burning out in residency or it was that first year of practice. And that's what I explain to people so many times. This is not an individual's problem. This is a cultural issue. And the problem is, as physicians, we have let ourselves get so unhealthy on an individual basis. We can't fight the cultural issue. We can't address the cultural issue because we can't even be part of the conversation because we are so tired, fatigued, hopeless (laughs) that we can't even fight our own battles. And I find that translates over to patient care, too. When you see a physician who, you know, there is, there's just kind of that blank, crispy look about them, their patient care does decline because they're in survival mode. And I'm just so passionate about trying to help people get out of survival mode and get into thriving mode. And it sounds like you definitely have found a place where you thrive um, and you have, you know, re-energized your passion for medicine with yeah. doing your telemedicine. That's amazing. Well, I can tell you, Erin, uh, that um, every six or seven years, I find I go through a mini burnout. So mm-hmm. even though you feel burned out and you're in a situation that you're in now working in ER, um, you will find your energy again and you'll go through several iterations of your career. Oh, yeah. And, you know, whatever you need to do, to continue to do what you enjoy um, and to find the joy back in medicine is worth doing. But I think what physicians, unfortunately, I think we do kind of get trained in residency and medical school to just put up and shut up. Mm -hmm. And that unfortunately is the wrong lesson. If you want to survive in the current healthcare system, physicians should stop putting up and shutting up because that is why we are here where we are with no voice. And so that's why I really jumped at the opportunity to be on this podcast with you, because I think more physicians need to feel passionate um, enough about what they see going wrong with the healthcare system to actually say something and do something, whether that's writing your legislators or educating your family or going out full advocacy and, you know, becoming an advocate for the AMA or your local you know, medical chapter, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be huge, but educating yourself on why the healthcare system the way it is, is the way it is and thinking about how you can contribute to the solution does go a long way to helping you burn out. Absolutely. And, you know, the statistics say it's not if you burn out, it's when, and the average yeah. number of burnouts are somewhere between two and three um, yeah. for a career. So you're absolutely correct on that. 
Um, oh, so I'm almost done. You are almost done. Yes, <laughs> yes. You are. You have almost hit your average, and then you can just go smooth sailing. Well, you know, so many times they used to call it a midlife crisis, but you yeah. know, since it's gotten so much more significant, I mean. Right now, there's five key areas that when burnout occurs, it's third year medical school. It's um, that first couple years of residency. It's fledgling physicians getting out mid-career. And then that right before retirement, physicians who are kind of at retirement age, don't want to retire, but end up retiring because they are just done. And so it's so key to identify that. And like you said, I think that's where... A lot of physicians feel stuck is because they are in a position that they feel like they can't reignite that passion for medicine. Well, yeah, I think the problem is that a lot of physicians are very, we're very isolationist. A lot of us practice, um, even though I practice in a group, when I'm physically at work, I'm practicing by myself mm-hmm. with a mid-level provider. Um, and and um, honestly, I don't actually work with my colleagues and I'm sure it's the same in family medicine. You're working side by side, but you're not working with each other. And mm-hmm. so we're all a bit isolationist in medicine. And I think we need to change that attitude. And remember that we need to support each other if we want to support the profession. I mean, these days, students are coming out with over a half a million dollars in debt. I'm uh, sorry, quarter million dollars in debt. Absolutely. Minimum, Absolutely. much more than that usually. And you've given up at least seven years of your life to train um, through medical school and residency, you're coming out in huge debt because you're basically working in residency on, you know, at minimum wage. Mm-hmm. You've put off starting a family. You've put off everything in your life. You go out and you start working and you realize, you know, everybody feels like it feels like everybody's against you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not only that, but God forbid you're one of those MDs or DOs who qualified for residency, but are one of those over 4,000 physicians out there right now who did not match, not because they were bad candidates, because there weren't enough spaces, because nobody wants to fund residency programs, but they do want to fund medical schools. Mm -hmm. Why? Because in medical school, you pay the medical school for your education. And when you leave, they pay you Mm -hmm. to continue your education. So I think it's a tragedy that so many MDs and DOs out there are, there's no pathway for them to practice or very few. Um, and then once you don't match, it's like you're blackballed. Why don't we support each other? Physicians should be supporting each other. We should be supporting these people. Um, so I just feel like we're too isolationist. We need to start thinking of ourselves as a collective and really, really go out of our way to support each other, not isolate each other. So another major problem, I think, in I think so, too, is, um, you know, like you said, the walls that we build. I hear that when you say isolationism. Um, mm-hmm. I love the work of Dr. Brene Brown, and she talks mm-hmm. about vulnerability. And I know that that's kind of a hot topic right now is, um, as physicians, how do we become vulnerable to colleagues? Mm-hmm. Uh, because sometimes that is the support that we need, but it's the last place that we want to gain support because we worry about our um, – how we look, you know, our appearance, yeah. what, what is, what is our name going to be if right. uh, Dr. Wiseman is caught bawling in the supply <laughs> closet because she just right. lost a patient, you know? Right, and right. so I think it's really telling, um, you know, setting up, I know several hospital systems are starting to try to 
build back that community. And hence, that's why I, you know, wanted to have these conversations. I want the doctor's lounge back. I want to have those talks. And so I am just so glad to have you join me today. You are absolutely going to have to come back because we did not even get halfway through (laughs) our frustrations list. It would be my pleasure. (laughs) Well, great. Well, we're going to cut it off here today for today's episode. And if you want to find out more about Dr. Irene Tian, and what she is doing, please find her at her website at my-doctor-friend.com. And I know that she'd be more than willing and happy to talk to any and everyone about the passion of her heart and what she is doing with medicine. So frustration. Yeah, who hasn't been? I've got to have a coming to Jesus meeting with you all and say, I have been totally frustrated trying to get this podcast going and even just this first episode, trying to get all the technology together and figure out what I want to say and make it something cohesive. At one point, I think I was ready to throw the microphone and the computer up against the wall. Not going to lie whatsoever. And now I look at it and it becomes perfectly clear. Why do I let myself get so frustrated? Have you ever felt that way? In the moment, you just, I get angry. That's my first thing to go to when I get frustrated. And so that anger just boils up. And then later on, I look at it and think, gosh, Why do I let myself get so emotional? And I think that's a great lesson to take away from Dr. Tian's talk today with frustration is that the world around us is so chaotic and there are so many factors that we just wish that we could control. We wish um, we could care for every patient, give them 110%, but the the system just does not allow that or just other um, layers just do not allow us to take care of people how we really truly want to. So in order to deal with that, we either have to change those factors or we have to deal with how we internally handle the frustration. And so one tool I want to give you today thinking about how you can handle your frustration is doing my own damn advice to be perfectly honest with the frustration that I've had with technology and having three kids and my husband working late and practicing medicine and everything coming together at once is that the first step is just to stop and be aware of the situation and name it. So just saying in the moment, I am so frustrated right now and um, just giving it a name because I think so many times we just get a bubble up of emotions that it's almost overwhelming and I know either I want to get angry or I want to shut down or I just want to run away from the situation. But when I stop and actually say what is going on with me at the time, it's almost like a cool breeze that kind of comes across my face and just helps me be like, okay, so that's what it is. So first step is awareness. The next step is assess. Just like when we're assessing a patient, we're asking questions, we're uh, doing a physical exam, we're looking through all their labs, getting a good picture of the situation that's what's going on. So step number two is assess your situation. What is going on in your life? What is causing that frustration? 
Um, is it something that's outside of the sphere of your control? Is it something that's happened and then your mind is just going crazy, crazy, crazy with it, rolling it over, making it something maybe bigger or more deadly or dangerous than what it actually is? So stop and assess your situation. You're a great clinician. You know how to assess situations. You know how to assess people. And so just start asking those questions to yourself. And then the last step is action. So form just one small step of action that you can do to help with your frustration. For me, when I wanted to throw the microphone up against the wall, I had to stop and my action was just walk away. Just walk away. It'll be there tomorrow. You can handle it then. It's time to get some sleep. Just walking away is an action step of its own. Maybe instead of letting it go and walk away, maybe there's an action step for you that feels better, like saying, okay, maybe I need to ask for help in this situation. Who can I ask? Or maybe an action step is to say, I am making this bigger in my head than what it is. Let's really name what it is and deal with it from there. And so the three steps again are awareness, name what's happening, assessment, talk and figure out walking through the situation, what's really going on, and action. Doing one small thing will be amazing to help you with what you're feeling at the time. And then from the next situation, the cycle starts all over again. Something new happens. You got to gain new awareness. You got to hit more assessment and you got to have different action steps. And it's a perpetual cycle because guess what, guys? Life is not about the end destination. It is about the journey along the way. And we are changing from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. You are not the same woman that you were when you started medical school. You're not the same one that graduated residency. You're not even the same one that you were last week. So it's okay to go through this process of change and in better, making yourself better through it all. So I hope that helps a little bit with your frustration. And I just so appreciate you listening to this podcast. Well, that's it for today's Doctor Me First. How are you going to doctor yourself first through your frustration? I would love to hear if you have any suggestions that you do. So come visit me on Facebook with Truth Prescriptions with Dr. Aaron Wiseman and tell me how you're going to deal with your own frustrations. Of course, if you feel like you need to talk, if you are feeling burned out, if you just want to sit down and have a chat with me, I would love to do this as well. And so I'm going to put in the show notes the link to where you can schedule an absolutely free, no commitments, no selling, no pushing colleague to colleague call that I would love to hear from you. So as always, remember you are not alone and your life, your calling, your pulse matters. Thanks.